A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, if one of your strains of starter culture dies, you've got lots of others. I love yeah. hybrid vigor. And it's the same for culture. You know, we don't, like monoculture doesn't work in farming and it doesn't work in humanity either. That's my new, that's, that's, that's how to bring cheese into the mono. Hello! Welcome back to another episode of the Delicious Legacy Podcast. My name is Thomas Dinas. And on each episode, I'm going to take you to a different ancient gastronomic adventure. Strap in while we're traveling back in time and enjoy our delicious adventures. On this episode, uh, I've had the pleasure to chat with Ned Palmer, author and cheesemonger, champion of British cheese for over 20 years now. He's been a guest on my podcast before when we talked about the long history of cheese. This time round, he rejoins me uh, in Borough Market, the mecca of fresh produce in London, and where Ned uh, started his career as a young cheesemonger all those years ago. Here, we delve in a conversation about superb British and Irish cheeses, what makes a Scottish cheddar different but equally fantastic to an English cheddar, from Somerset, for example, and what that has to do uh, with terroir. We talk about flavour profiles and what this means uh, for different cheeses and some surprising tasting notes that he found in uh, many regional cheeses. We tried to find the role and the place of British cheeses in our modern and ever-changing UK and world and the challenge these cheesemakers face. Finally, for Patreon backers only, Ned gives us some of his uh, wisdom as to what uh, beer to pair with uh, cheese. I hope you will enjoy. Subscribe and back uh, the podcast on Patreon if you want to find out more. Look, you are a philosopher, yes. like Socrates. Well, yes, there is There's that. only one thing we know, that we don't know anything. So, I, yeah, a recovering philosopher, like I'm trying to get over that, but it's really true, it's really true. Once a philosopher, I suppose. Always, always a philosopher, philosopher. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Recovering, yeah. You know, there were a lot in um, the dairy, there's a lot in the world of cheese. I, yeah, I don't get that, I mean... I do, I completely get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's are we amazing. recording? Because it is a good point. Um, we are recording, yeah. So, so, one thing, really simply, it's just about rigour. Like, when you're studying philosophy or being a philosopher, there's an absolute rigour about um, what does this sentence mean? You know, or what am I saying when I say this? What is the argument? What logical conclusions follow from this if I say this thing, if I, you know, take this position? And if you're making cheese, you have to be absolutely rigorous, you know, if, if the temperature is like 
a degree over what it's meant to be, it's going to be a different outcome. If you put the rennet in at a slightly different time, it's going to change things. So there's this complete kind of rigour about doing it. But there's also, cheese is a complex system. And I think it's factual in the proper sense of the word. The deeper you looked into any part of it, the more complexity there would be. Yeah. So it takes a sort of philosophical mind when you're making cheese to be kind of thinking, well, what was going on there? And what were those variables? How did they affect it? How can we change that? Not everyone makes cheese like that. Yeah. But I think that the Zen masters of cheese making, like Mary Holbrook, say, they, they, they did it, just not consciously. But yeah. they were still being philosophers, philosophy, but in a more yes. Zen way of doing it. So yeah, philosophy and cheese. Exactly. Because, um, yeah. It has the scientific bit, but yeah. also it's not about that. It's not about creating a scientific exact product. It's something that it has to have a character. It, it really and it has a character. Yeah, it does. Proper and good cheese has a character. Exactly, and I really like the word character because um, if you get so even if you get a very scientific cheesemaker like Bill Ogilvie or a very empirical cheesemaker, so he has a stopwatch, yeah. Yeah. and you know when you. When you put the rennet in, or when you put the starter culture in, say, you, you click the stopwatch so that when you put the rennet in, you know exactly to the millisecond when you put it in. And you measure that and you record it. And it may change over the year, but you, you're tracking all of that. And he uses, um, you know, various tech to say to check acidity. But at the same time, he knows that there's a mystery to it. And he knows that... Um, He's not in 100% control of, of what he's doing. And that's where the character comes, I think. That's where that um, comes. That's great. And Yeah, character is, is so interesting, isn't it? And I think, in a sense, it's the imponderable thing. What makes this cheddar different from that cheddar if they're made a few miles down the road from each other? And there might absolutely be that one of the fields has more chalk in it or less clay or something. And it might be that the breed is slightly different, it's a different herd. But then there's just the way that Jamie does it with his hands and the way that George does it with his hands. That they couldn't even necessarily say if they said what it was that they did that was different. But, and it sounds romantic, and it is romantic, but I also think it's a real uh, thing. A real effect. As is terroir. Yeah, which we're going to talk about yeah. in extent, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but let's start from the beginning, start from I suppose. The beginning. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. So, cheers, Ned. Cheers, Thanks Tom. for coming uh, to the podcast again. Thanks for having me. Uh, two years, almost to the dot. I know, the last right? time. That went quickly. And yeah, you have a new book out. I do. I do have a new book out. Brilliant. So it's called A Cheesemonger's Compendium of British and Irish Cheese. Because I'm good at titles. Um, and it is what that says. It's a treasury of um, about 150 cheeses from all over Britain, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, or the island of Ireland. Um, and it was kind of my lockdown homework. So I was supposed to write a cheesemonger's tour of France, which meant going to France. So yeah. obviously in 2020, that couldn't happen. So my editor said, why don't you do this first? And I realized when I started off that I only knew 50 cheeses really well. And there are 50 cheeses in the first book, Cheesemonger's yeah. History. So I needed to taste 100 new cheeses. And this I did with my long-suffering wife, Imogen Robertson, great author of historical fiction, um, and long-suffering wife of a cheesemonger. <laughs> I decided that we would taste them at seven in the morning to make like a routine of it. So I would get this delivery of cheese 
Um, and it'd be all sorts of reeking cheeses from Wales, these washed wines and that, you know. And then we would sit there at seven in the morning having about five or six cheeses. I mean, and, will you marry me? Yeah, I know, I'll, right? You I'll, can come, I'll stay. You can come stay. <laughs> the neighbours started, like, blenching when they saw me coming down the drive because I'd be like, do you want some cheese? Because I'd had so much cheese. You had to give it away to all the neighbours. So, yes, there's about 150 cheeses. It's got short descriptions of each cheese what they taste like and look like a little bit of story a bit of folklore or something so they're like a treasury of, of cheeses which is great I suppose because yeah I mean if you think about it we hear about so many different British cheeses and the renaissance of British cheese yeah. but we don't actually know many more than the obvious ones like cheddar yeah. stilton yeah. some fresh goat cheese and yeah and I think we're all guilty of that and it's not a sin either I mean to start with you talk about cheddar and stilton you're talking about two of the greatest cheeses in the world you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the territorials like Lancashire and Caerphilly and Red Leicester these are all amazing cheeses and they are the ones that have come to mind first I guess for anyone even a sort of cheese amateur I don't know what to call it an enthusiastic amateur but even I found out that there were, you know, there were at least 100 and far more than 100 Fun, yeah. for, for me to taste. Um, and, I, you know, apologies to all the people that didn't get in. It's only because I could only eat so much cheese. And books can't Is be it? infinite. That's true, yeah, yeah. The first thing, I don't think it's true. You can eat. Really? <laughs> I can eat a lot. Oh, geez, a lot. I mean, in terms of the book being infinite, while I was writing the book, new cheeses were appearing, yeah. which was driving me nuts. You know, the manuscript was prized from my hands, and I'm like, wait, wait, Martin's got a new one, I need to stick it in. And, and particularly, I think, in Martin's case, in Martin got makes James and a bunch of other cheeses, his reaction to lockdown and the exigencies of lockdown, all the stress and the yeah. stress, was to make more kinds of cheese. I just, and it, I, I'm so far Brilliant. I'll just, you know, try a bunch of different stuff, see what works. Really yeah, good. yeah, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the number 150 was arbitrary, or it was, it was like was enough. It arbitrary. But it was kind of what will fit in a book, um, roughly speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, the, the, nine, the number climbed up, and also the number is indeterminate. So, I think on some copy it says 150 cheeses. I think in the uh, flyleaf here it says 158. I think I've counted 164. But I also have a theory. You know those rings of standing stones, the Neolithic stones? And you know, like, there's often a superstition that no one can count the exact number of stones? Right. I think it's the same no. with the cheeses in my book. No one can say that. Basically, cheese. it's a mystical cheese book. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Already. Um, so, okay, you told me what this is about. Yeah. Uh, but is there anything like this out there, like similar? There are. Um, there are lots, and they're all great. What uh, makes your book unique? I think, I think that I wrote it. I, mean, I don't mean that in a prideful way. I mean, I've got, I've got the cheeses I like. I've got the flavours that my palate notices and the ones that I like. So they'll probably appear more without me trying to be objective. Yeah. The way that I talk about them. Because I'm interested in folklore and um, history, they tend, the descriptions tend to have little bits of that in. If you look at other books, um, I think Julia Harbert's amazing Book of World Cheeses, um, much more focused just on the actual taste, you know, the organoleptic qualities of the cheese and something about the maker and the former. Um, so it does that. Yeah. I mean, I also, you know, I think that it, there's, there's plenty of space for everyone to write a list book because list books are obsolete 
even before they're published because people keep making new cheeses. And also, you know, I taste a cheese for the first time ever, and it's a three-month-old, whatever it is, a three-month-old Smith's cheddar. And I go, that's very nice, very young, very delicate, very gentle. Someone else writes a book, and they taste the 12-month-old cheddar. And it's a completely different thing. Uh, it's a completely different thing. And they would write a different thing about it. Yeah. So I think there's room for everyone. Lovely. We have to tell, obviously, to the listeners that we are out in borough markets. Yes. And this is your spiritual home in a way. It kind of is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the reason I'm a cheesemonger is coming to sell cheese at Borough Market. And it was coming here to sell Gorwith Cafilli that my mate Todd made. I'd never done anything like it before. I'd never sold retail. I'd never had any truck with fancy food. And I had a bit of this cheese and I realised that all the cheese I'd ever had before in my life was rubbish. And, uh, and, and that re- basically turned me into a cheesemonger in the sense that the rest of my life is devoted to the quest, why? And why is that so good? Why isn't all cheese like that? Yeah. You know, why did I not get it for ages? You know, why are the British not famous, as famous as they should be for their cheese? If we make all these amazing cheeses. No, so, so Todd quickly got me a job at Neil's Yard Dairy to stop me bothering him. But I started, that was in 2000. And so, yeah, I've been kind of being involved with it. No, and then I ended up running the Caffilly store in the market for a while. When we got married at Peckham Registry, the first thing we did was come to the market (laughs) to say hi to and have our lunch at Elliot. So, yeah, yeah, it's always been part of it. That's brilliant. So, yeah, it's an excellent place to have our our chat today, I think. Yeah, Yeah. isn't it? It's perfect. Also, there's beer. And cheese. And cheese. We should get some cheese in a bit, shouldn't we? We'll get some later on, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great. So, okay. My first deep question yes. is, um, obviously, we have 150 cheeses. Yeah. But if I had to ask you really hard yeah. to choose one from each uh, country of yeah. uh, the British Isles, <laughs> what would you do? Yeah. What would you choose? Well, it's, it's nice of you to give me a, to give me five. <laughs> and that has made it slightly less painful because the question, you know, what's your favourite cheese, gets asked a lot. And it does. it's physically painful because, no. you know, there are thousands of cheeses. Um, I just can't uh, answer this question. There's no, yeah. yeah, you cannot choose one cheese. And, and also what I like about it is, you know, through eating a hundred new cheeses, um, I found a lot of new cheeses and I found a lot of new flavours. And I learned something about terroir. Mm. Let's talk about that because I know we're going to talk about terroir. So for me, for Scotland, there's a cheddar called St Andrews. Uh, And the thing about it, I'll just just look it up so we can say who it's made by for everyone. It's made by uh, Jane Stewart. It's made in Fife. So it's made on the east coast of Scotland. Now, there's a terroir of cheddar, as in cheddar gets its character from where it's from. And Scottish cheddar tends to look more pale than Somerset cheddar because the um, the grazing is different. The grass is less rich. The temperature's cooler, you get less growth. So you get a paler colour. The grass gives it that. Yeah. No less delicious, you know, but it's a different thing. When I looked at the St Andrew's cheddar, it is paler than Somerset cheddar, but it's darker than the Isle of Mull, which is over on the west coast. Of course. And this is to do with the different um, grass, the way it grows, there's more rain in, on the Isle of Mull. I think it's a bit warmer on the east coast. Uh, and you can see it. So I learned this thing, that there's a terroir of Scottish cheddar and that the really attuned cheese fanatic can tell the difference between a west and east coast cheddar. So you want to be able to go into shop, oh, I see you have some east coast cheddar, excellent. You know. yeah, so that, yeah. that was a revelation to me. And it's a delicious cheese, and it is 
it has a very different character to Somerset. It's got more moisture in it. It's got something slightly farmyardy. I know it's a bit boozy. As if right. there's some fermentation going on. Just a really, really delicious cheese that really expresses its place. Um, there's also sort of English cheese imperialism because cheddar kind of, um, it kind of almost wiped out the Scottish indigenous cheese, Dunlop, the similar cheese, hard cheese. Um, and cheddar became so popular and so successful, a lot of cheese makers would go over to it. And we nearly lost Dunlop through a sort of inadvertent English cheese imperialism. So it's kind of nice to see the Scots fighting back with a really great cheddar. That's great. I love that. Um, so, so England. So England, one of the most fascinating cheeses I've ever eaten is called Witheridge. It's made in Hampshire uh, by Nettlebed Creamery. And the thing is, it's matured in hay. And I've seen hard cheeses in the Alps that have a coating of hay or flowers on them. And there is some flavour permeating the cheese and they look beautiful. But I've never seen this soft cheese. It's almost a washed rind. Looks like a pinky bone. Oh, wow, okay. Which has been wrapped in hay. And this is what cheesemakers are like. You know what I was saying? They're like philosophers. They grew the hay especially, like a certain mix of seeds to make the right hay to mature their cheeses in and then dried it out, you know, and I bet there was a drying regime to work out what was the optimal yeah. speed at which to, to reduce that moisture, to wrap the cheese in. And it just gives it this amazing flavour, slightly beery. Right, yeah, of Kind course. of malty, yeah. and maybe the cheese was still a bit, the hay was still a bit moist or something, but just so singular, and I'd really never had flavours like that in a cheese before. And comparatively new, you know, yeah. Nettlebed Creamery. You know, we're not talking about Montgomery's been going for 150 years or something. So that was exciting. Um, I mean, this is so reductive, obviously. I know, I know. But uh, here we go. Wales, I was thinking of, there's a fella who also has one of the best names ever. He's called John Savage Onsveder. And he's a, a Dutch Welshman, or a Welsh Dutchman, or he was a Dutchman that came over to Wales. And now he's yeah, adopted, yeah. Makes cheese. And he makes cheeses that are sometimes a mix of say welsh cheese and dutch style um mm, okay and so when you talk about terroir you can talk about culture not just soil but how people make cheese and wine and that and if you emigrated from holland to wales you would take some of that cheese making culture with you some of your technique and yeah. that would just affect how you did it of course even not the tech it would just be how you liked it when you tasted the curve that would affect how you made it so you could say that character would get into the cheese um, and this one that well John and his, his team or his family make is a, it's called Saval and it's a wash rind so these are the cheeses washed in brine they grow um, bacterial rind on the rind has those barnyardy farmy flavours the ones we're not supposed to say out loud my editor keeps editing out every time I put what I really mean in but you know very human flavours very intimate yeah and um, I think, yes, it's a kefili. So it's a kefili recipe, but then the rind is washed. Okay, that sounds... a more northern European... That sounds, yeah, very yeah. interesting. Very and different. It, it, um, so I've got... I'll just read... Actually, can I just read my, my favourite description? Because I think uh, yeah. I'll better it, actually. It just says, um, opening with a pronounced whiff of the farm, the first flavour I pick up is sweetness, opening out into white chocolate with a trace of estuary fruitiness, finishing on a tingling acidity. <laughs> um... 
and you know that's all true it's got that barnyardy stuff it's oddly sweet and you get white chocolate in cheeses sometimes I know that sounds bizarre that sounds bizarre often yeah. in uh, mountain cheeses like Conte or Beaufort particularly I get white chocolate oh wow okay um, and that estery fruitiness is pro- possibly well esters um, giving that kind of boozy fruity note to it it sounds like a great cheese I have to try that it's one. really good it's really yeah. good what also um, well, I mean, here is the thing that, you know, online. even in modern life with online sales and all of that, I was just going back to why don't we see it because of this, you know, the division between the countries still pertains and you're more likely to find some in a shop in, in, um, in Wales than you are in London, sadly, and let's fix that. But Fair online enough. ordering the Welsh Cheese Company is really good uh, and they have lots of Welsh cheese, funnily enough. And they do great packaging. Um, it's really sustainable, but it's just beautiful. Like, almost it's like getting a present. So you get Saval from them. He also brought a teak vat from um, Holland with him. So made a teak hardwood, a very, very beautiful thing. If anyone worried about hardwood cutting in forests, I reckon it might be 100 years old. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Forest, <laughs> at least. And well seasoned by all that cheese making. And that, that's just oh, wow. a lovely idea as well, to bring the, the, the vat over. Um, Ireland, Ireland, Ireland is full of cheese. Um, Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbian Creek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce, be it wine, herbs, cheeses or olive oil, from all over the wild corners of Greece and working directly with small artisan producers. Malbian Greek has many varieties of uh, Greek cheeses from all over the Greek world. And you'll find cheeses um, like Crete Graviera from Sfakia, from the wild uh, mountains of Sfakia in the south of Crete, Arsenico from Naxos, Xyrotiri cheese uh, from Samothraki, and the best uh, ever feta outside of uh, Greece, Costarello's barrel-aged feta. And uh, yeah, you can enjoy all these cheeses uh, in UK from Malby and Greek. Malby and Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. You can shop online and have the exquisite goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art 17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SE16 4ET, Bermondsey, London. And of course, for all you dear listeners, Malbin Greek has an amazing discount of 15% off your next purchase. So go online, go to the website and type malbiengreek.com forward slash delicious and you get 15% discount at the checkout. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ireland, Ireland, Ireland is full Again, of cheese. that's something we don't really um, know about Ireland, well, do we? Well, yeah, and, that, and we are so wrong not to know that because it's called the Emerald Isle. And it's called the Emerald Isle, like when you fly over it, if it's not cloudy, which is quite rare, you'll see why, because the green of the field is so green. It's such excellent pasture and lots of rain. Um, and um, the, the animals love it. And they talked about, like, like they almost just scrape the butter off the legs of your cow because you just walk through the field and it'd be that rich, the grass. Um, so it really has always been a big area for dairying, dairy farming. Sadly, again, the English kind of spoiled it a bit because they turned it over to grain while they took the land off the Irish people, sort of pastoral farmers, and turned it over to grain when they lost all their grain in, uh, in the Hundred Years' War in, in the territories in France that they lost. Right, so right, okay. Um, a terrible thing, but <laughs> since the 19th century, the Irish have been making more cheese uh, and going to more and more to their own styles. They started out making things like cheddar and Stilton, but then they went to... Um, particularly from the 70s, you know, that renaissance making their own style. So this, this is a goat's cheese called Plum Moor. And the thing about it is that it tastes of roasted peanuts. And it's not a flavour note that I often encounter in the cheese. Once before, in Gabine, actually, in County Cork. So also County Cork. Uh, I don't know if that's the soil, but um, roasted peanuts. Also floral... Um, very gentle goat, so people who don't like goat's milk, this one is it's really gentle. It's got amazing ivory colour, looks like vellum, like old parchment. Um, and goat's cheese is usually really pure white, and this has this lovely vellum colour. So it's surprising in a lot of ways. Also, hard goat's cheese, which this is, really hard to make. Very difficult. Most goat's cheese is soft. You know, the milk doesn't coagulate. So it's a really skillful cheese making. Oh, wow. So, um, right, Northern Ireland. Um, the thing about Ireland is there's an awful lot of cheese made in County Cork. I mean, a wonderful lot of cheese made in County Cork. And it's slightly embarrassing because if you look at my map in the back, you know, there's a lot of cheeses in County, County Cork. Cork. And then there's some with Wicklow, you know, that's great, Tipperary, Bart. Um, I think the land must be really great. And it was where the Renaissance there kind of began with um, Milines and a woman called um, uh, Veronica Steele. Yeah. 70s. But... I did try and get some cheese from other bits. And then Northern Ireland, 
there seem to be fewer cheeses around and that might just be so far i think that the renaissance is still building yeah and i don't know if it's also yet to do with soil or climate as well but there were such a fewer per per mile but um one of them it's called young buck and uh so and, and even the name i love it because this is a cheeky name so it's an unpasteurized stilton style you're not allowed to make unpasteurized cheese and call it stilton but you can't make Stilton in Ireland. It has to be made in Nottinghamshire, Leicestershire, or Derbyshire in English counties. So Michael Thompson, who, who, who makes it, he went there. He went to England to make cheese, particularly at Stitchelton Dairy with Joe Schneider, making raw milk Stilton-style cheese. And he wanted to call it Stitchelton. He said, because isn't it a new, it's like a new yeah, style. Yeah. And Joe said, no, you can't. Like, you know, it's mine. But also, it should be, we should be able to call it Stilton. You know? yeah. So he's still lobbying for that. So Michael called it Young Buck. And it's like, you know, the young guy, the new kid on the block. It's like cheeky. I love it. It's quite, it's, how to put it? It's a, it's a rambunctious cheese. It can be really intense and it can be quite variable in a cool way for you. And where a lot of people praise, they, 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 they prize consistency in cheese making. Yeah. With blue cheese particularly, you want a nice even spread. I'm miming this and our listeners can't see, but I'm miming and it. An even spread of veins through the cheese, so it looks like marble. Yeah. And Young Buck doesn't necessarily do that so much. It's not necessarily such an even spread. And I love it. You get almost different flavours. You get a banana-y, estery flavour sometimes around the rind. Another flavour you wouldn't expect, bananas. And it is the artificial foam banana flavour. Um, is, is what I get. That's insane. Which actually, you know, and this is just a sidebar, the so-called artificial banana flavour, you probably know this, is actually based on an original banana that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So all the bananas, I think, one... One by eight, yes, variety. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so what tastes like artificial is actually true native, you know, land-raised banana. Well, that's what his cheese tastes of. As well as the peppery blue... Um, yeah. Um, and you know a lot of umami and that um, and they look quite gnarly so I like to think they've got a gnarly because you have a stilton which is very creamy yeah yeah and then yeah. you have stilton which is a little bit firmer yeah. yeah and then this one has a very different character it does and it's it's more like it is like um, a mix between the two and it's interesting you say that so I am a Neil Sard dairy cheese man, even though I haven't been one for more than 10 years like you kind of are you never really leave. And um, to me, Stilton is creamy, and that's how it tasted. And it was aged until it got creamy, and it was aged until a certain acidity that's in the young cheese mellowed out into something more rich. So that, for me, is that Stilton. Now, you get other creameries that make Stilton that make it harder and more acidic. And I have to admit, finally, after years of growing, trying to go on, that that's fine, and it is just a different philosophy of cheese making. It's not incorrect. <laughs> but, you know, the dairy dies hard in a man, you know. Uh, so, but, and then Young Buck is an interesting mixture of that. Firm, but still quite moist with bits of creamy, or it might, you know, shade to a creaminess. And its acidity is somewhere between that really rounded out and that more sharp. So everything has its character. Was that five? I think that was so that's five. That's five? Cool. We, we, we've done I could count five to five. five. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what, we, you're, what you're saying is that the terroir is really important, basically. The terroir is terroir really terroir important. Is, yeah. It's yeah. important. Yeah. As important as the skills of the cheesemaker. Cheesemaker. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, there would be argument about this. 
and before one gets too romantic and starts talking about the taste of the soil, I know that there are eminent cheesemongers, and I think they've got science to back them up, that say that there's not that much character coming through. It's much more about the make. Um, and I think by... Ca- so, the classic example is a Scottish cheddar called Isle of Mark. And they feed the cattle on a lot of draft, which is the barley mash from whiskey making. Now, it's terroir to a tea. Oh, OK, I don't know where they get the barley from, but that is the barley mash they make Tobermory whiskey from on the island. Um, and then they feed that to cows. And I've always reckoned that you can taste something like whiskey in the cheese, a bit of iodine, a bit of peat. That, you know, is that counter of a Tobermory yeah. saying what? It is also said that, no, you can't. It just, those flavours don't really come through in milk so much. It was a bit romantic. I want to believe it does. But then there are a lot of things, I think, to what we mean when we say to one, if that's what you want to. Yeah, it's a more broad uh, thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's yeah. not about the soil itself, but it's about the feet of the animal, the animal, yeah. the climate, the weather. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I also, um, I love the way you distinguish between climate and weather, because I think that's really true. That, you know, if you make, um, if you had cheese in a wetter year, it would be different from a really hot, dry year. Yeah. Um, and then also, so everything you say is true, and the word comes from terroir, it's from terre, from soil, from earth. Originally, they talked about the taste of terroir and food, that by now I mean the French. Yeah. And maybe this is the 16th, 17th century. Um, maybe earlier, and on goût de terroir, the taste, and they really meant the taste of the earth. And they said this thing, the taste of the earth. And they said, or oh, I think actually it was one of the Roman agricultural writers said, to know if land is good, you would put the soil into the water and some water and swizzle it about and drink it. And if it tastes good, it's good soil to grow things on, which is gorgeous. And I mean, I'm not saying that a farmer couldn't taste soil and maybe think, oh, well, I'm not going to buy that field off Joe. Or, yeah, no, we need to plough some seaweed into this. But, but it comes from earth. Yeah. And yet it means so much more. And the next thing above weather, climate, soil, elevation, topography, height above sea level, is culture, is people. Um, and what happened to the people such that they needed to make a big hard cheese like cheddar? Or why do the Greeks make brined cheese like feta? You know, what, what are the economic reasons or their, what do they believe? Indeed, yeah, everything plays yeah. role, yeah. And that kind of leads me to the next part of the, the next question, perhaps, that it has to do, what's, uh, what are the British uh, cheeses, the place of the British cheeses in um, our um, table, basically? How, how, in the modern world, basically, what, what's, what's the role of the British cheese in the world? The role of British cheese in the modern world. Yeah. Wicked. This sounds like this is a lot like my um, finals dissertation for my master's in cheese. <laughs> I like the role of cheese in the modern world. I love it. It's, really, it's a really lovely and interesting question, and I know that you know <laughs> that we could talk about the Renaissance that began in the 70s, and we could talk about the need for that, and the need for that. The reason for that need was that so much of our cheese was gone and that so much of it was made in factories and people, we were losing those, even the knowledge of making our traditional varieties or even making cheese in, a, in, an, in an artisanal, uh, traditional way. Like not let alone, you know, how to do that with a, with a, with a Lancashire or a cheddar. So that was happening. 
Um, and there was a, oddly a benefit to that, I think, in that cheesemakers in, in Britain and in Ireland were happy to innovate and play around and use different recipes because they had to. Right. But they could develop you know, new varieties of cheese that didn't exist before. So the Jones brothers kind of invented, with Doogie Campbell invented, Lincolnshire Poacher, which is a mix of Gruyere and cheddar. Yeah. If you take a tradition, a country like France that's managed to preserve so much more of its tradition, it's vanishingly rare. I don't, I've never heard of a French cheesemaker says, oh, I love that Stilton, I'm going to make a cheese that's a mixture between Stilton and Roquefort. You know, never heard of it. May exist, I hope it does. Never heard of it. So you start with this thing that we British and Irish cheesemakers are comfortable with playing and inventing new cheeses or developing mm. hybrid. That did not valorise our traditional cheeses like Lancashire, Cheshire, Red Leicester, Double Gloucester, Wessel. And I'm talking about a specific family called the Territorials. When you say Territorials to English people, British people, they tend to think you mean those part-time soldiers. Mm. And they've never heard of this unique family of cheeses that only exists in Britain. And I would almost, they're kind of English, really. And I think you could almost say they originate around Cheshire and it's right, in the 17th century right. and it grows from there, except Dunlop. And another thing for me now, almost a reaction to that perhaps, is going back to these traditional styles. I mentioned the territorials, the thing that the, the British are not adequately proud enough or mm. even know about enough, mm. you know, to realise that we have this, I think, unique family of cheese. So the cow's milk, they are hard to semi-soft, so hard to a bit crumbly. They tend to be their cloth-bound cylinders. That's unique to British cheesemaking, this binding of cloth. Possibly invented by the Americans, but, you know, never mind. Um, um, and so, uh, 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 in a sense, there's this paradox for me that one thing that's happening about British cheese in the modern world is a look back to the past and, a tr and an attempt to refine, save, re-energise some of those traditions of cheese-making. Um, and so that, in a sense, is a bit of a movement for me. Um, mm about and, and so we have some cheeses now there's some new Wensleydales right. they are based on pre-war Wensleydale recipe so are they new or old uh, and, and one of the families I can't remember if it's the Hattons or the Noblets but they actually found a woman who, who was I think 102 Mrs Peacock who remembered making it because there were steps in the recipe that they couldn't understand as modern cheesemakers why is this why are you doing that and what does it do when you do it? And she was able to show you. Wow, okay. So it's That's... a sort of odd thing to reach back in the modern world to these traditions and then bring them back up to here and say, are these good? Are they, you know, these are milder cheeses. They take a bit, they're more unassuming. It's a bit mm. harder to market that than something really yeah. extremely, yeah. Very, very intense flavour. So that's a thing. The other thing that, that is this... Okay, so it's a huge issue and it's a thorny one and it's one we can spend our whole thing on. It is about poverty, and uh, rising costs of living um, and foods that, like cheddar, used to, in a sense, to be a staple food. Mm. Plowman's lunch was invented as a marketing thing in the 70s, but by God, of course, they ate bread and cheese. And cheeses like that are rapidly becoming unaffordable for for a lot of people and it's something I'm beginning to find difficult mm. that people have to be paid enough we know that our food has been too cheap 
and that's come at a terrible cost. So we know that, we, that, that food has different sorts of costs and ideally we need to pay more for things. We need to pay more in terms of animal welfare. It, it costs us, you know, financially. But more and more I'm feeling it's harder and harder for me to say, yes, we need to eat like this. Yeah. So I'm not sure, there's no answer to that, Tom. That is an issue that we all need to approach um, and think about. And another one. In this segment, uh, Ned, uh, he actually uh, praises um, a Syrian refugee who turned cheesemaker, and she was actually a pharmacist before, and now she's a Yorkshire cheesemaker. Her name is uh, Razan Alsus, and her award-winning company is called Yorkshire Dama Cheese, and they make a type of halloumi cheese, uh, they call it squeaky cheese, and the labne, which is a spreadable yogurt cheese, very popular in the Middle East. Uh, obviously, you can find uh, the products if you go yorkshiredamacheese.co.uk online. And yeah, you would have the chance to taste them. And think about. And another one that is actually sort of happier in a way is about diversity in farming and, and cheese making and in cheese mongering. And I think and I hope that I have noticed more and more diversity, but there's a long way to go with that. And that's great, that's fun. Mm. It's fun mm, and interesting. Mm. You know, we have a, I think she's Syrian cheesemaker who came here as a refugee. I think she's a microbiologist. Couldn't get work yes, as a microbiologist and is making, um, I'm going to say all these things wrong, uh, you know, a form of cheese that would look like feta to me, but would be a form of Syrian or Persian feta. Um, by God, she may be Iranian, I apologise. But that is interesting to me. That's just a new thing. Yeah, it? yeah. That's... So diversity is, a, is, a, is a, in, in food production and selling and that is, is a, something we need to work on, but in a really joyful way. Mm, you know? mm. And it's always, I love the idea of hybrid figure. It's why I like raw milk cheese. The more bacteria, the higher the bacteria population, the more it fights off the bad bacteria, the more complex the flavour is. You know, if one of your strains of starter culture dies, you've got lots of others. I love yeah. hybrid vigour. And it's the same for culture. You know, we don't, like monoculture doesn't work in farming and it doesn't work in humanity either. That's my new, that's, that's, that's how to bring cheese into the modern world. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's a fantastic way to finish um, our little chat. Great. Here in Borough Market. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom, and thanks for letting me go on. We'll do this a lot more, please. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, that was lovely, Ned. Thank you Great. so much. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> and that's all for me. I've been Thomas Dinas. Thank you once again for listening to the Delicious Legacy podcast. I love to hear your thoughts and responses, so please head over on Twitter and tell me what you think. You can follow the podcast at the Delicious Legacy, all one word. Or Join me on Patreon, where you can put The Delicious Legacy again. One word. And that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash The Delicious Legacy. Or Google Patreon and The Delicious Legacy podcast. This podcast can only keep going with the generous support of our subscribers on Patreon. You guys keep me running, you help me cover my costs and allow me to dedicate more time researching each episode. I want to thank all of my subscribers for helping so far to create this series. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider going to Patreon and type the Delicious Legacy podcast and contribute something and keep this podcast running. Thanks for listening. All the best. Over and out.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.